right now, I mean, I'm working on releases that are coming out in March and April, right. um, which is like six months down the road, COVID or U.S. election or not. Those artists right. are going to be releasing music. So you have to kind of think long term. You can predict what's going to happen, but nobody knows. Right. Like nobody, nobody ever asked for the Beatles. Nobody yeah. asked for the Sex Pistols or the Rolling Stones or a flock of seagulls or Nirvana right. or Ed Sheeran. So these artists continually buck the system yeah. and demand their attention. And that's what I still love about music is that you can plan. You can't ever predict. You're listening to Having a Chat, the show where we take interesting people with interesting tastes in music and talk to them about the music that they love. I'm Alex Spears, and this week on the show, we are chatting with Canadian music publicist Eric Alper. Perhaps best known for his blog, That Eric Alper, Eric is a publicist who has worked with some of the biggest names in music. His love for and knowledge of music has been a massive source of inspiration for me over the years, so we're very excited to have Eric Alper with us to chat about some music. This is Having a Chat. Alrighty, man. Well, uh, thank you very much for, for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, happy to be here. I'm happy to, well, I, I've, I've always been here. Yeah. I don't think I've left anywhere since March, but I'm happy to be here. Yeah, of course. Here, be here. here virtually. Love it. Um, so I wanted to ask you a few questions before we got into, um, into no, your there's song. no questions here. No not, questions. There are no questions allowed. No, no we're only gonna We're only going to, we're just going to let you gonna drone s- on. Yeah, no, we're just going to stare lovingly into each other's eyes and, uh, you know, make the listeners rise in terms of spirits. Yes, yes. Ah! Okay, no, I'm good. <laughs> All right. Um, so I heard you say in a bunch of interviews that um, that you sucked at playing music, but, oh, yeah. but you were a drummer. Is that deliberately throwing shade at drummers? No, no. It was the only thing that I knew how to do because... Um, I put together a drum kit using probably 18 other drum kits. Um, and I was really good on my steering wheel in my car. So I figured that I could do this. I could do this. I sound great. Um, but when you put me in front of a real drum kit, I was awful at that too. <laughs> I couldn't, I, you know, drummers. Um, the reason why I, I, the only time when I'll throw shade at them is because really it just, it's counting to four several times over. But I right. couldn't even do that. I couldn't keep up with anybody. No, I was awful. Everybody in, in the cover band that I was in for about four months. And the only reason why it was four months is because we all rehearsed at my parents' house. So we were the right. only ones that they allowed us to do it. So I had home court advantage. If I got if I left the band, they wouldn't have any place to rehearse. Everybody else in the band went on to fame and fortune in right. playing music. But I knew I was awful. Oh, my God. I was atrocious. Yeah, because I, I, I had sort of... Well, I had interpreted it as like, I sucked at playing music, but I could play drums, which is... uh... No, we we can throw shade at drummers all the time. They deserve it. They're like goalies (laughs) and catchers and baseball. They're on a different planet altogether. Because, you know, whenever you do a a joke about music or musicians, you never do the punchline of guitarists. You do the punchline of the drummers because, you know, sometimes they're too 
they're too slow to pick up on it. No, yeah. I'm really kidding. Well, well, Noel Gallagher once compared drummers to orangutans. It's just like you have a job where you just <laughs> sit around and hit shit all day. And uh, and he said right, that he wanted right. to be in a dance band so that he could just get a drum machine. He didn't have to, you know, buy any drugs for the drummer or anything like that. I mean, fancy having a job where you bang things all day. That's what orangutans do, that, don't they? And gorillas and monkeys and that. They just bang things, like bang dustbin lids on their heads and all that. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they do, isn't it? And drummers just do it and get paid loads of money for it. Fucking sack them all drum machines, I say, man. Sonia, can't wait to in a dance band. <laughs> Press the button. Yeah. Well, you know, Charlie Watt from the Rolling Stones said, you know, during the 25th year anniversary of the Rolling Stones, he said, like, his whole career is summed up as five years of actual playing and 15 years or 20 years of hanging around waiting right. for the guitarist and Mick to write some songs. So, you right. know, you, you, you hear it from them too. Well, you know, I, I, I'm a drummer and my parents have always uh, given me lots of drummer jokes. And one of the ones that they've said is what's a guy who likes to hang around with musicians called it's a drummer. Uh, right. So, right. Uh, so that makes me think of that. Um, so the next thing I wanted to get into with you is like this idea. It seems as if, like money has been not a driving force for you in your career. I mean, you know, like a, a, a blog that's free from ads. There's stories of you just doing, you know, PR for bars just for food um, and, you know, and, and tickets to the gigs and stuff like that. Um, like, do you think that that was a benefit to you? What's generally, I guess, just what's your take on that? As someone who kind of feels in some cases personally inhibited by kind of a similar thing where I, I just impulsively just do it for the community. What, what, what do you think the fallout of that has been for you? Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, when, when I realized that I wanted to be in the music industry and quickly realized that I couldn't play, um, I, I was hanging around enough people to know that money was never the first thing it was, you know, for lack of a better term, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I mean, that's what we all grew up on. The The vocabulary and the dictionary wasn't around in the 70s and 80s with the way that it is now looking back on certain people's behaviors um, as wrong or whatever mm -hmm. it is. So the musicians that I was hanging around and that I met and that I talked to, they didn't have a plan B. They slept on people's couches. Um, they slept in their vans. They drove all night despite any health issues to get to the next gig to play to three people and the bartender. And in Canada, if you were a rock band, that's how you got your start is mm -hmm. this country has always been very kind to those people that can play live. It doesn't say that this country was very kind to people who made a lot of money and was able to keep it. So I kind of grew up with that philosophy that the only way that I was going to survive doing PR was to just work really, really hard. And maybe the money will come. Mm -hmm. Maybe it won't. But, you know, I, I my parents both worked at the same place in a job that they didn't necessarily love. Um, they absolutely loved us both, myself and my sister. They absolutely provided for us. We were definitely comfortable middle class but they didn't like what they did and I knew that music offered me the opportunity to do something that I love to do and maybe the money would come down like the artist told me all these years um, and that was my philosophy in the beginning and in the beginning I I really had three three kind of angles was to do it smarter do it faster and do it cheaper than anybody else so I knew what everybody else was charging and so 
when everybody else was charging $500 a month back in the early 90s, I was charging $100 a month. But it allowed me to work with artists that could afford a publicist. Yeah. And so when I was first starting out, I, I stunk at that too. I mean, I was making <laughs> rookie mistakes. You know, my grammar was horrible. Um, I, 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 you know, you, you're just learning how to do things. But I was doing it with bands that were making mistakes as well. So we, yeah. we were both learning everything together. And, you know, time after time, um, we both got bigger and better doing what we were doing. And that allowed me to, to like raise my rates. But I know what everybody else charges now. And I know I'm still pretty affordable to indie bands with just their first single. They, I, want, I, I intend to keep it that way for the rest of my life. Right. You know, even on Twitter or social media, I still tweet the same way as I did when I had four followers and now when I have 700 and something thousand followers, it's still, I have to do it because I love to do it. I don't want to do it because somebody's going to pay me to do it. Yeah. I mean, and do you think that that, because like in the music industry and in sort of music industry lore, if you want to call it that, there's always stories of just people on the business side of things who are, you know, money hungry and end up screwing over a lot of artists as a result and don't get a lot of longevity like do you think that that sort of that the not being cash focused has led to your longevity in the business i think it's led to the diversity of the people that i've worked with right. um and you know the ability for me knowing i'm not going to work at a major label i'm not going to work at a universal or a sony or a warner um, I just didn't feel like I could really make a difference. And I interned there a number of, of, of different places when I was first starting out. Um, and I saw that you can make six figures or the people that were running these record labels were, were millionaires. Mm -hmm. And I thought, good for them. But I couldn't do that. I couldn't play the game that they were playing. I mm -hmm. couldn't figure out how to even think about using CDs as product to sell like widgets mm -hmm. to other countries around the world when their dollar was higher or lower based right. on the Canadian dollar. That's what happened. And I, I couldn't even manifest that kind of thinking to see music as product. I saw music as something more, um, but that's okay. Like I'm sure that everybody that runs their labels and, and works at those places are diehard music fans, just the same. I yeah. just wanted to fit into a system that was much smaller and when you do that, you're either going to have to sell out um, your label to somebody else, or you're just going to have to take a look at the charts and find those artists that fit that mold. I never mm -hmm. did. I wanted to work with Bob Geldof and Barry Mallow and the Wiggles and Guar mm -hmm. and indie artists that were first starting out, because as long as I was not doing something I didn't want to do, like I could never work in a restaurant. Like it's so hard compared to what I think my qualities and qualifications are. Um, but, you know, there are people who do really, really well in that business. I couldn't. So I just figured, you know, I'm doing okay. You know, no. I'm not, I'm not suffering, but it's always, um, it, you know, the, the eye on the prize for me was just to continue to be happy and, and do good work. And, and if, yeah, I mean, even now I still work artists for free because mm -hmm. I love them and because I know that they couldn't afford to have anybody else working on their team. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's reasons for that. The first is obviously is that I love them and I want to help them out and I have time to do that. Mm -hmm. The second thing is a strictly business sense that I know that maybe this artist will open up doors 
that the other artists can't for me in terms of working the media. So if I can get stuff happening with that artist, then maybe those contacts and those connections with that artist may open up doors for another artist down the road. So there's always a calculated effort, at least in my mind, trying to figure out who I want to work with because I don't pick up just anybody. Right. Yeah. So you're like, you're, it's almost like you're, you're thinking like way, way, way down the road. You're kind of 10 steps. I have to. Yeah. Yeah. And just like record labels do, or anybody that runs a business has to, um, you know, uh, right now, I mean, I'm working on releases that are coming out in March and April, um, which is like six months down the road, COVID or U.S. election or not, those artists are going to be releasing music. So you have to kind of think long-term. You can predict what's going to happen, but nobody knows. Like nobody, nobody ever asked for the Beatles. Nobody asked for the Sex Pistols or the Rolling Stones or a flock of seagulls or Nirvana or Ed Sheeran. So these artists continually buck the system and demand their attention. And that's what I still love about music is that you can plan you can't ever predict no. it's funny because artists will always ask that in the beginning They'll, well what do you think we can do and i'm like well i know what i'm gonna do because yeah. i'm gonna pitch your stuff and hit the ground running whatever happens the beautiful thing about music is that we don't get to decide the minute yeah. i hit send on that press release and you as an artist don't get to decide who's gonna love your music you can spend all the money you want on mm-hmm. boosting that post on facebook or twitter or instagram you can go after those like-minded bands and they're uh for the artists like if you love drive-by truckers you can go after wilco's fans doesn't mean they're gonna like it and that's the beautiful thing is like it's the magic of the music industry that you never know when things are gonna hit or fail yeah yeah and so i mean i'm, I'm interested just because you, you mentioned covid and and the sort of the fact that there are you know, we're in the midst of a just sort of massive global event that has really shaken up the music industry, largely because of, you know, obviously the absence of being able to play live. Um, and, and it's been really cool for me just doing this show, being able to talk to a really wide spectrum of musicians um, about sort of how they're adapting. Um, and you, as someone who's been around for a long time, you've been posting all these videos on YouTube, like these one minute sort of tips um, which I think are really great. And what, what do you, what, what advice do you have for musicians that are, that are sort of trying to sort of navigate this, uh, this new world? Yeah. You know, it, 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 this is it. This is what we're going to be doing until at least fall 2021. Right. You know, there, there's a lot of venues that are going to be devastated and crushed and not open. You know, there's a study in the UK that came out that said that over 75% of music venues over there aren't going to open if they don't open up full time with full capacity in November, which is next week. So uh, I would imagine that those numbers are the same throughout North America. Um, Definitely worse in the U S it's just impossible for them to run a business running at uh, one fifth capacity with the same taxes that they have to pay and everything like that. So, um, this is it. And and artists have to realize that there's no magic silver bullet that's going to come down and save you. We're, we're back to, to artists realizing that this is a singles world that we're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, if people know history about the music industry, 
before the album was really successful in the late 1960s, you never got to release an album if you were an artist unless your first three songs broke big. Mm -hmm. um, and we're back to that where everything is all about the single. Everything yeah. is all about video because we love to consume music on our phones and watch things and it keeps people on the site longer right. than, uh, uh, than just, you know, embedding on, on Spotify or, or Apple. And, and the numbers show it that 75% of all music is being consumed on YouTube. So they have to start making things for the video world again. And you can make those videos of slideshows or lyric videos or official videos or live videos or even putting up the album cover with the music underneath the, 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 the actual bed track. But unless you're being really creative, it's not going to go viral no matter mm -hmm. how much money you spend pumping it down people's throats because people still want great. And more yeah. than ever before, because yeah. the choices are limitless when it comes to the amount of music out there. Forget about the fact that some of us and most of us are still at home, right. working from home and will be for the next little bit. Our competition is like Netflix and yeah. all the other movie channels that we have at our disposal. So, you know, the sheer competition is in another band in your area. Your right. competition now are the Beatles and the Stones yeah. and the Who because we all have, we all want that access to the same eyes and ears as everybody else. So it's just a matter of being really creative and doing like short spurts, you know, yeah. one song a month just to keep them going. But yeah. I think just sitting in front of your iPhone performing live isn't, you know, may cut it for a little bit, but eventually even your own audience may get bored of something like yeah. that. Well, yeah. And like, and zoom fatigue is such a real thing at this point, you know, yeah. I mean, and like, so, um, Hillary, um, who's sitting right next to me, my producer and I, we we helped out on the team for a an online music festival, and it was actually really really cool seeing how certain artists were really like taking advantage of the video medium. Like you know, some some would just basically film themselves playing, but then there were heaps of others who really tried to put out something unique and really really cool. Um, so it, it it has been kind of it, it's for those who are able to do that it's been it's been actually kind of a treat to see yeah and it's such a weird thing too you're performing to nobody you yeah. know you can't hear anybody except if it's on zoom and everybody can go off of uh mute but yeah you know even even comedians are are struggling right now yeah. with not only with drive-ins and some bands certainly have done that the indigo girls last week performed a, a really good show in their hometown of of atlanta georgia um, mm -hmm. at the drive-in theaters. And certainly there's been other artists across Canada that have done that, but we're going to hit winter in, yeah. in a matter of time. And I don't know anybody that wants to keep their car running for two and a half hours listening to a drive-in. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's a weird thing that the artists are going to have to try to figure out how to do and pivot. And I don't blame them for feeling a little bit lost or, or hitting that Zoom fatigue because it's it's tough. It's yeah. we're so used to music being a a, a communal experience to hear right. the crowd, to wait in line, to go through security, to eat the food, to drink the beer, to look around all those people and realize that oh my gosh, there's just as much geeks as I am loving this band to right. go home completely deaf. You know that's all part of the whole experience of going yeah. to see a live show. Um, and, and we may not have that for a long time. So, yeah. 
Um, I don't know what's going to replace it. I know it's definitely not going to be, you know, only on Zoom, but it could very well be. But we're seeing some really crafty people have concerts on Twitch. We've certainly seen the rise of virtual uh, reality and AI in there Mm -hmm. um, with, with people going on that, on those platforms and that system. So, you know, and I say this all knowing that, the generation that I've come from who had no problem sitting at home watching much music and MTV, seeing those people in concert was a massive deal. Yeah. It was a huge part of, of being a live music fan. Mm-hmm. This generation of eight to 15 year old music lovers probably haven't seen a lot of shows as yeah. much as we all have. They have not that much interest. And I'm speaking broadly. Right. They're drinking less, they're smoking less, they're doing less drugs, they have video games at their disposal that are way better than what I had when when I was growing up. So they're used to that social separation, maybe a little bit more than what my generation was or generation X or Y was, where they may not have a they may not be missing seeing the weekend in concert or Ariana Grande. Uh, in concert because they're not they haven't toured that much yeah. in their market and they're so used to seeing them on twitter on facebook on instagram on yeah they're TikTok. on like the travis scott Fortnite concert yeah. yeah they're they're that's how they're consuming music so for me to talk about what a concert is like i don't know my daughter's 17 and a half she's gone to a lot of shows but that's just because i happen to be in it right. she knows people she knows people that haven't seen a live concert in their in their whole lives. So yeah. they're certainly music fans and they're not missing anything, or at least they don't feel like they're missing anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny just kind of hearing you like list off the things like, you know, kind of looking around and, you know, getting the shitty food and like, you know, this and that, like that really is such a huge part of the experience. And it's yeah. funny just to like, to hear you rattle those things off because I'm kind of like, Oh yeah. Like I totally, it's almost like I forgot about that. You know what I mean? Going to a music festival when you're past the age of 35, when you're the creepy old guy in the back, when you're camping and you're like, why am I doing this? Like I'm too old for this. And, but that's part of the whole experience, not only of growing up, but also just checking to see what people are doing. Like glamping wouldn't be around when I was going to see shows where, you know, you have a lamp, electricity and running water, like in your own tent, you wouldn't have that. You would be like, well, this, this mud pile looks really good to sleep in (laughs) right now. And so you go and do it. You didn't have a choice. If you wanted to wake up the next day and go see the next band. Yeah. So I want to get into, into your song picks. Now Um, we're going to kick things off with Jerry Lee Lewis uh, with great balls of fire. Great sort of late 50s rock and roll tune. What do you like about this song? Uh, when I was eight years old, I saw the movie American Hot Wax, and it told the story of Alan Freed, who was a Cleveland DJ who coined the term rock and roll. And right. he was one of the first people to bring rock and roll concerts to the masses. And uh, when I was eight years old, that was my Star Wars. That was it. Wow. I looked at that film, and I'm like, that's what I want to do. And Jerry Lee Lewis is in that film, Um and performing Great Balls of Fire. And that was the one that blew me away that when people talk about seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, that was seeing it. Jerry Lee Lewis on American Hot Wax, that was my moment. What are some other rock and roll movies that you, uh, that you like? Um, I can watch Almost Famous anytime 
all day and night. I love that movie. Um, there's there's a lot of stuff. I mean, like this is Spinal Tap is right. so right on and righteous. Um, but I love watching music documentaries like Six Feet from Stardom, which tells the story of backing singers. The yeah. Oasis Supersonic documentary yeah. I thought was amazing. Yeah. Um, classic album series that go deep in an album. I Those just love great. how watching you know music gets made and all the yeah. behind scenes stuff able to not just related to my own life but go oh that seems like fun i didn't have that experience yeah well it's funny i mean spinal tap is like mandatory watching in my family Man. like i think my dad showed it to me when i was eight or something um and he described like when he when he first saw it it was in the theater and apparently there were a bunch of like metal dudes who didn't get that it was a joke and they were okay. like, they were like walking out of the theater, like, oh, dude, we should check that band. This out. band sucks. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's amazing that no matter how long has passed since you first saw that film, it will come up in the voice of your head yeah. when something comes up like that. You know, when somebody complains backstage about their food or the lights, somebody invariably will say, you know, the meat is too big for this yeah. sandwich, or They'll, they'll complain. Go ahead. Yeah. It is, well, it's funny that you mentioned that specific one because I was I was backstage at the Key to Bala um, in Muskoka with the beaches last summer. And there yeah. was a tray of cold cuts with bread that was too, like little kind of cracker right. bread. And I was literally like, I was going around the room being like, has no, like no one had seen Spinal Tap. No one got it. And I was just right. like, I had to call my dad and like video call him and show him. It was like, look, it's like the, it's like the movie. That's, that's when you know who your group is. If you snap the photo <laughs> of that and put it up on Instagram, those people that comment that will get it. Those are going to be your friends for life. Yeah. Those are the real ones. Those <laughs> yeah, for real. Balls of fire. 
Um, all right. So next we're going to talk about uh, Genesis with Turn It On Again. Uh, what do you like yeah. about Genesis? You have a poster uh, of them behind you. I do. I have the Abacab poster behind me. Um, this is the first band I ever saw live. Um, um, that was my own band. I saw ABBA when I was eight years old with my parents. But seeing Genesis in 1981, I'm still chasing that high of seeing the band in person. I was a big Phil Collins fan when I was about 10, when in the air tonight and turn it on again, came right. on the radio. Um, I'm still a massive Phil Collins fan. I will fight anybody who says otherwise. Um, but that was the first kind of song that gave me a sense of this is a band that I can now follow along with right. me rather than here's a band that broke up 20 years ago. Like right. I love Jerry Lee Lewis. I love Buddy Holly. I love the Beatles, but they weren't my bands yeah. and my artists because they were long past yeah. recording. Genesis was the one that I can follow along with their releases and love every single one of them. Right. So, I mean, so you say that like that you've kind of been like chasing that, like almost like chasing that high from that first yeah. Genesis gig. What do you look for in a live show? Like what, what is it that like, can bring a live show as close to that as possible? Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, look, I saw the chain smokers last year right? and they were probably my top, it definitely my top three bands I've ever seen wow. live and shows. It, it was phenomenal. They were, they were so good. And, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't care if everything was planned. They just had right. excitement. They, they saw the eyes of the crowd yeah. And being DJs, they knew how to kind of create the set list that allowed yeah. them to do that. I saw, um, I saw Post Malone, and I I dig him. And yeah. Dull, like dull, dull, dull. He had no band. He was just. It just seemed like maybe he had an off night or just didn't care. But I didn't need to see him and only him for like three hours or two hours. Yeah. So I'm looking for not necessarily real musicianship. I'm just looking for people that are going to be having fun. But I yeah. love watching the interplay with people knowing full well that these guys or women have been playing for 10, 15 years. And this is this is astounding that they can yeah. do this because, again, it's all magic to me. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like I, I remember I saw I was roped into going to see major. I mean, you know, I'm not a big like EDM guy, but I was roped into going to see major laser at uh, Oshiega yeah. a few years ago. And I remember kind of like actually really being blown away. Um, it yeah. may, it may have been the drugs, but I remember <laughs> literally thinking like this, these guys are like Iggy pop, just like the way that they were engaging with right. the crowd. It yeah. was like, it was this very profound moment and I'm still not much of an EDM guy, but I still, but I remember that moment as being like, okay, like there's, there's something going on here, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. In the early two thousands, I was doing PR for DJs like, Tash and Digweed and Carl Cox and Underworld. And um, I was out every night going to raves and going indoor and outdoor, trying to, and the indoor ones were trying to recreate that feeling of it. Right. The DJs were rock stars. Yeah. I mean, going to see Fat Boy Slim, I yeah. never, ever had the attitude that, well, they're just hitting buttons. Well, so are piano players. Yeah. You know, so are keyboardists. Um, but they knew how to dominate a crowd and have fun doing it. And that was yeah. so important for me that even if I didn't want to dance and I could just be a wallflower and stand there with my arms folded <laughs> and watch them, I loved that.
Um, so next we're going to talk about Sinead O'Connor. Um, I'm stretched on your grave. Uh, what do you like about this one? Yeah, this one comes from the album. I do not want what I have not got. And that album hit me profoundly because not only was she getting into a lot of trouble around that time for not showing up at the Grammy Awards when she was nominated. She tore up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and was right. banned from the show. She did not take any crap from anybody. And that album made me realize that not only as a woman performer, first mm -hmm. and foremost, but as a rock star and as an artist, you can still do what you want to do and stick to your morals and stick to your guns and end up working with her a number of albums down the road. And I was, I've never been terrified to work with anybody. I was terrified to hang out with her because I wanted to be so liked by her. Um, mm -hmm. And she was massively cool and everything that I wanted. And I thought that she could be. So that was the first album that I realized that you don't have to always take a look at what your sales are doing. You could just stick to your morals and stick to yeah. your guns and still create some brilliant music and be successful at it. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in artists getting banned from SNL. Like it seems like they have almost have like a, a, a fairly low bar for what gets you banned. Like, you know, there, there's all sorts of like top 10 lists floating around of like what, you yeah. know, all these different bands. What are some other bands that have gotten banned from SNL? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Elvis Costello was apparently supposedly supposed to do his new single, but then stopped it halfway and did the song Radio Radio, which is about the, the tightening of formats at radio station. And he was, he was told that he could not play that song, but he ended up playing it anyway. Yeah. Um, Andrew Dice Clay got banned because of his language. Um, you know, the band, um, I think, not death, not crass. Fear? One of those, fear, when yeah. fear invited everybody to come up with them on stage and John Belushi is in the audience, you know, <laughs> cajoling people to come up on stage, that'll get you banned. But that's live music, you know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's almost like, you know, why would you want to go to a party that you're not invited to? So I don't think yeah. that it hurt anybody's career. Yeah, fair enough. Fair. And, 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 you know, and, and it just spreads more word about you, right? Like, I mean, I, yeah. I know about fear oh, yeah. because of that SNL thing, you know, oh, several getting, generations getting later. Getting banned might be the best thing that ever happens to certain people, you know? Yeah. Like, Two Live Crew was huge because they were banned. Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Relax song was banned by the BBC and that made a storm. If, if there's one thing that you could do as, as gatekeepers of radio and television or press is, is ban someone, yeah. you know? And that's the best thing that could ever happen with their career. The yeah. act of being banned is sometimes more important than having your record played.
Um, all right. So next we're going to get into talk, talk, life's what you make it. Uh, what do you is, like about this one? This is the song that I'm going to be having played at my funeral. Everybody should have a song like this. Um, talk, talk were the band that started off as a little bit of a poor man, Duran Duran, but they quickly for their last three albums uh, turned into um, free form jazz, pop, soul, um, uh, just art noise. Um, the most beautiful record I ever heard, but life's what you make it uh, pretty much summed up the time in my life when I got a little bit older, I got a little bit more mature um, and my music choices certainly went along with me. And now the color of spring album where this comes from is a real serious album that needs right. to be listened to. And at the time there weren't a lot of albums like that around. Yeah. So it's funny that you are now the second person on the show to say, to, to pick a song that you want to be played at your funeral. We had, right. uh, we had Warren Kinsella. I don't know if you know him. He's, he's yeah. like, you know, he's a political guy, but he was a yeah. music guy first and foremost. And he, uh, he said that he wanted ceremony by new order played at oh, his funeral that's a good one too and then we yeah. had peter hook on the show and peter hook said that if warren paid for his airfare he'd fly out to his funeral and play it for him so um, right, right <laughs> hopefully right. we can get and you peter, peter hook may do that with just the bass yeah and you know it, it, it's a pretty bass centric song to be honest so maybe yeah. uh, maybe you can make that work
<laughs> All right. So last up, um, we're getting into our Canadian content uh, segment of the show. Um, we're going to play three songs off of uh, Broken Social Scene. You forgot it in people. Um, what do you like about Broken Social Scene? Um, I mean, everybody in that band is a genius in their own right. Kevin Drew is one of the most beautiful, heartwarming, loving people I've ever met in the music industry. Um, as I get older, the more uh, the more important that album and that scene uh, is to me when I don't see it very often. Right. Um, they really built a community in the city of Toronto and for Canada to know that you can have an all-star team of people who weren't all-stars when the album first came out um, and when the band first started, but they became great um, working as a unit and right. starting not only Broken Social Scene, but also the Arts and Crafts record label that has yeah. brought a lot of the bands to the forefront. Um, just just pure, you know, I uh, love everything about what they do. Yeah. Um, from, from the artwork to the songs to their tours, they just always seem to be on the right side of things. Yeah. I mean, and arts and crafts is like, it's such a huge thing in the, in the Canadian, like sort of indie music scene. Um, you know, I, I, I really, really miss the field trip music festival in Toronto. Yeah. Um, what was, um, but you, when you first got started, you started a label yourself. Um, yeah. and then you, and then you sort of, you, you expanded it into a booking agency and then uh, a PR agency. And then you kind of shrunk it back down to just the PR. What was it about, the, the label and the booking agency that, that sort of made you shift away from that? Um, because I could burn my own money. Um, right. I didn't need other people to do it for me. Um, we started the record label as a 50-50 split with a band back in the day called Acid Test. Right. And we realized that without booking, nobody would come and see the bands play in order to sell the records. Right. And so we became booking agencies. Uh, along with the label and then we realized that without PR nobody would come and see the band play that we just spent all this time booking so then I realized that I can get paid to do PR without having to worry about losing my shirt based right. on uh, on the other audience's perspectives I'd rather just get paid on doing the work regardless if I was successful or not so yeah. it was just strictly a business decision and I didn't want to worry all the time I worry enough as it is even to this day about <laughs> indie bands I didn't need to worry about you know whether or not if these records were going to ship to the record stores. Yeah. Alrighty, man. That's, uh, that's it for, that's it for us. Um, and, uh, you know, we really, we really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. I love this. I love the, the show and I love what you're doing and, we need more people like you. Oh, that means a lot, man. Thanks so much to Eric Alper for joining us this week. As always, you can find full episodes of this show wherever you get your podcasts or at havingachat.com. The show is produced by myself and Hillary Johnston, and all social media and marketing material is done by Petra Walker. So don't forget to check us out on social media at havingachat. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, don't forget to drop us a review. It really helps us out. Theme music is done by Duncan Briggs and Sugar Glass. And to wrap up this week's show, this is Broken Social Scene with Capture the Flag. <laughs>